Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians, to Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 through 18 as we do continue on in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We remember that Paul was in chains when he wrote this. Specifically, he had been taken to Rome because the Jews had handed him over. Uh, and we want to remember always that these things happened for a reason. Uh, we'll be discussing that as we go through the, uh, the, uh, this epistle that Paul gave. And uh, we'll see a slightly different uh, view of, of bad events than I, I think most people, even in the Christian church, have. But before we turn our attention to the Word of God, let's go to the God who gave us this Word and let's ask for his help this evening. Oh, Sovereign Lord, we need your help. Whenever we come to your word, we know we are entered into spiritual warfare. There are so many ways in which we're distracted at this moment in time. And while we find it easy to sit and watch a movie for an hour or two or even three if it's epic, Lord, we have great difficulty concentrating upon your word. And the things that we see on television or on the computer, Lord, those things are usually not very important at all. But the things here, the things that we hear from your Apostle Paul, these are the things of life and death. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fix our attention. Help me, O oh Lord, to preach. I'm a man with feet of clay. I can do nothing without you, Lord. I cannot exposit your word, and I certainly can't apply it to the hearts of your people. But I pray, Lord, that you would make it possible for me to divide it aright this evening. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that work of causing the seed of the gospel to go down into hearts. I pray, O oh Lord, that those who don't know you would come to that knowledge of your saving grace. And that those, O oh Lord, who need to be emboldened, that that would happen as well. O oh Lord, may your work be done in the preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Philippians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 18. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Most of us, I, I would hope, in fact, all of us would agree with what Paul said elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, 28, when he wrote, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But I find that even amongst Christians, there is a tendency to make all things in that sentence refer only to the good things that I enjoy, the things that are not hurtful, the things that do not make me weep or cry or despair or suddenly afflict me and cast me down. But Paul is mindful that even the things that distress us, if we are the Lord's, they will advance the gospel and not just us. 
the things that distress the church, congregations, churches in cities, and individuals who are members, all of us, the things that happen to us in the progress of redemption, all of them are intended for our good and for the good of the gospel. Now, many of the Philippians receiving this letter and knowing that Paul was in chains in Rome, probably suspecting that a verdict uh, had already been rendered and that uh, a sentence was going to come down, they would have been very, very upset, not just because their beloved friend was languishing in jail, but they didn't know uh, if he would be condemned or acquitted, and no doubt they wanted to hear about that, but they would also be thinking, what will happen to the gospel now that Paul has been thrown in jail. Certainly all of the good work that he was doing amongst the churches here in Macedonia and in Achaia, that is Greece, and in Asia Minor, all of those places, that work will have been hobbled, stopped, in some way thwarted. But Paul wants them to understand that that is not the case and that he is not, in fact, languishing away. Paul had a different mind. With him, the, pri the primary question was not going to be, what is going to happen to me in terms of what would be the outcome of the trial? Will I be put to death or, or something like that? But rather it is, how is the gospel cause affected by whatever happens to me? And his answer, surprisingly enough, was not that it was being held back or in any way thwarted, but that rather even the things that, that were making him, in an outward sense, miserable, they were actually working for the good of the gospel. Even his imprisonment, even his chains were leading to, and I am so sorry for this rhyme, but even his chains were leading to gains for the gospel. So accordingly, Paul writes first that the gospel was going forward to them. He wants the Philippians who he's writing to, to understand even my imprisonment has worked for the good of the advancement of the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. William Hendrickson put it very well when he said this. He said, Paul's experiences and reactions, his bounds, his rather, sorry, bonds, trial, constant witness for Christ, conduct in the midst of affliction, had served the purpose of tending to remove the obstacles that had been set in the way of the gospel. Thus, roadblocks set up by Satan to hinder and stop the progress of the gospel had become stepping stones to better understanding and deeper appreciation of God's redemptive truth and to rising courage in defending it. Paul had been bound, but the word of God could not be bound. When the apostle went to Rome as a prisoner, it was in reality the gospel that went to Rome. Now, throughout history, redemptive history that is, and, and throughout our lives, our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and who's the last one? The devil will constantly be seeking to set up obstacles to the advance of the gospel, seeking to thwart the progress of redemption or even supposedly to halt it. And yet the Lord makes all of the things that they throw up work ultimately for the advancement of the gospel. It must frustrate the devil to no end that no matter how he seeks to thwart the going forward of the good news of Jesus Christ, yet he only succeeds in advancing it. 
And we see again and again in Bible history the very things that were meant to do the most damage. They are the things that are used, in fact, to bring the gospel to different places, to save many, as it were. I mean, for instance, one of the great examples of that is given to us in Genesis, isn't it? In the life of Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. Here is, the, uh, is one who is greatly favored by the Lord, greatly favored by his father, obviously, given that coat of many colors. And the brothers become jealous, they're filled with envy, and they decide they're going to get rid of him once and for all, they're going to kill him. But uh, by chance, Midianite traders come by, and instead he is sold into slavery. And that should have been the end of Joseph, but it was not. He was carried to Egypt, and there he's eventually advanced to the point where he's second only to Pharaoh. All of God's working brought this about. And Paul, I mean, sorry, Joseph understood that. So when his brothers confront him, because they're scared silly, and they say, your father, Jacob, before he died, he said, treat them well, forgive them for what they've done, and so on. He says these things to them in Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph understood that his enslavement, his imprisonment, had all worked in the end for the advancing of God's purposes and for the saving of many alive, including the very brothers who had sold him into slavery. And perhaps the greatest example, of course, of evil being thwarted, even greater than Joseph and his brothers and being sold into slavery and how the people of Israel were brought into Egypt for a time and grew into a mighty nation and then were brought out by God's mighty right hand under the leadership of Moses, much greater than that is to be found in, of course, the crucifixion. This was the greatest evil that mankind has ever done. They took the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and they put him to death. And yet even that was God's purpose. Peter standing up before the men of Israel, who had many of them been in Jerusalem at the time Christ was being crucified and no doubt had shouted crucify and crucify instead of free him and instead asked for a murderer Barabbas to be freed he preaches to them and he says in Acts 2 and verse 22 men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The world, the flesh, and the devil had done their worst to our Lord Jesus Christ. They had crucified him, and yet his very crucifixion was the instrument of our deliverance and salvation. This does not mean that the action of those people who did that was good, far from it. It was evil, very evil. And yet the Lord takes the evil that men do and he turns it to good for the kingdom again and again. So even Paul's loss of liberty and the fact that he was under constant guard, ultimately it was going to work good for him. It was going to advance the gospel. Well, how so? Well, for instance, the fact that he was thrown in a dungeon and uh, his only company at that point were guards, the fact was that the guards were constantly being changed. They were relieving one another, and Paul would have a constant stream of people 
that he could proselytize, talk to about the gospel. He had an, a ready-made audience amongst the Gentile members of the Praetorian Guard who were guarding him. And they were struck, he notes, they were struck by things like his, his patience, his gentleness, his courage, the fact that he was unswervingly loyal to this Jesus whom he was proclaiming. And they were impressed by it. These hardened soldiers, these legionaries who would have you know, done anything for Caesar, including put people to death in the blink of an eye, yet they were moved by the way Paul acted. They were deeply impressed by the gospel message that he proclaimed. And these guards, they, they knew prisoners. And they knew also from watching Paul and listening to Paul, they knew that Paul was not in prison for any criminal act or any sedition. They knew that he was not a rebel like so many of the other rebels and plotters that they had encountered. And they saw his faithfulness to the Christ he proclaimed. And as a result, it had an effect upon them. Not just because of that, of course, but by the working of the Holy Spirit as Paul was fearless in his proclamation of the gospel and changing hearts. I, and this is not something that stopped just with Paul. I was reminded of the example that I read about in the Voice of the Martyrs a long, long time ago. It was of a Nepalese prisoner. This man was a convert to Christianity. And uh, Nepal, at one time, was uh, a Hindu kingdom. It was specifically Hindu. The Constitution stated that there were to be no attempts at proselytizing on, part, on the part of other religions. It was illegal to do so. And this man was caught proselytizing, and he was thrown in jail. So immediately after coming to jail, he saw his opportunity, and he began proselytizing the prisoners he was in jail with. And the people who ran the prison, they became infuriated by the fact that he continued to preach the gospel. And not just that he continued to pre preach the gospel, that the people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? They threw him into solitary confinement. And what did he do? He began to proselytize the guards who were outside. And one by one, they began to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. It wasn't just Paul who seized every opportunity to share the gospel, even in those negative circumstances. And many people in that circumstance, they themselves would have been deeply afraid. I'm already in terrible trouble. I don't want to get myself in more trouble by continuing to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just going to be quiet until they let me go. Many people would say that. But he doesn't. He doesn't compromise at all. And his attitude in the midst, note this, he, he says this, his attitude in the midst of imprisonment had heartened the local brethren, the Christians in Rome, to continue preaching the gospel, thinking if Paul can do it, then so can we. We read, for instance, in Acts 28.20, 20, that Paul for a time had been in his own home. And that people had been constantly coming to him from the Christian community in Rome. And so he would have had opportunities to speak to them, to embolden them, to teach them cogently and clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. And they had seen his example and had said, I want to do that. I hope that there are Christians in your life like that. People who you look to and you see their boldness for Christ. And you say to yourself, I want to be like that. I have encountered brothers and sisters who are so bold for Christ, they never miss an opportunity. I always feel ashamed. They can be standing in line, and they're just standing there 
praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak to this person ahead of me about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm usually looking at the product and say, I can't believe it costs this much. Inflation is terrible. I'm thinking these things. That person would be like, Lord, please, the cashier or this person or something. And then they seize that opportunity and they begin the conversation and they don't let up until they have at least transmitted some portion of law and gospel in this person's life. I am always, and I I will admit right now, uh, I am a terrible introvert. Speaking to people as I am speaking to you is the most terrifying thing in my life. I would literally rather rush a machine gun nest with a toothbrush uh, than speak in public at times, especially in large assemblies. But the Lord has given me boldness in that as well. And so when I have a captive audience on a plane, I will start talking to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll ask for opportunities to do that because I've seen the example of others. And it has built up my boldness. And so, too, the people in Rome saw the example of Paul, this diminutive man who was able to talk to the Praetorian guards and to speak to them about Jesus Christ. And they saw his steadfastness, his courage, and not just uh, as something spoken of about other people or something that he wrote in letters. They saw his courage under fire, as it were. And more importantly, they saw how the Lord sustained him in the midst of trial, how the grace of God was able to, to supersede the bounds that, uh, or the bonds, rather, that he was, he was under. And he had this supernatural courage. And they knew if it was available to Paul, it's available to them. Do you know that? Do you know that the Holy Spirit's courage to give you that willingness to say the things that you're afraid to say, to relatives especially, my word, they're the, sometimes the most difficult people on the face of the planet to evangelize. The Lord will give you that courage. You need to step out in faith, though, trusting in him knowing that the things that are impossible for men are possible with God. So Paul talks about the faithful brethren who he had just mentioned who had been, uh, he, who had been encouraged by him. And he says, these people, because of what's going on in my life, because of my chains, and this was not an enjoyable experience, being chained up in Rome, but because of my chains, they are proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is going forth. It is being heralded. And then he talks about the people who are preaching, not for the best reasons. There had been other Christians, obviously, in Rome before Paul uh, arrived there, and certain of these preachers, no doubt, had become very jealous of his success and his prominence amongst the Christians. And as a result, they began to dislike him. They developed a grudge against him. Their, Their former prestige, perhaps, was suffering. More people talked about Paul than talked about them. They became envious of him. And as a result, they preached Christ even more vehemently. Paul says that although these people are preaching out of envy, yet they're still preaching God. Now, it's very, not- it's, it's very important to remember that these were people whose preaching of the gospel, they were preaching the true gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Paul would not have commended people who were preaching a false gospel. We only have to look at the book of Galatians to see how he talks about people who preach another gospel and how much uh, acid he pours upon that, that rightly uh, because it's an awful thing to preach a gospel that saves no one. For instance, the false gospel of the Judaizers that trapped people and endlessly trying to perform good works to, to meet the requirements of the law when only Christ could do that, rather than trusting in justification by faith alone. But that kind of envy is something that, unfortunately, often fills people. What happens is that people see their own prominence in gospel ministry being diminished by, by someone else. And as a result, they, they don't like them and they, uh, they try to work against them. And it's very possible that many of these, these preachers within Rome thought uh, that if their assemblies became larger, more people listened to them or they gained prominence, that Paul's feelings would be hurt because they thought, of course, well, no doubt Paul feels the same way we do that he wants prominence amongst the preachers. And if we can take it away from him, we'll add to his affliction in his chains, as he speaks of. Now, you can see this envy, not just here, uh, as it's mentioned in the Philippians, but also, for instance, in the disciples of John. If you'll turn with me to, and by that I mean John the Baptist, if you'll turn to John 3.25, we read there, Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples, and the Jews about purification. And they came to John, that is John the Baptist, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They're upset. Your ministry is decreasing. His ministry keeps growing by leaps and bounds. This is awful. But then you hear, continue to, to read with me in this section because you hear the right response to that envy from John the Baptist, what does he say? John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. It, it should not be the case that we care deeply to make sure that people are only coming to our ministry and that we get very upset when other ministries are increasing as long as Christ increases, as long as he is being proclaimed and believed in. And yet jealousy and envy will often motivate men to, to even greater exertions for the gospel. Calvin, for instance, wrote, Paul assuredly says nothing here, which I have not myself had experience. For there are living at this very day those who have preached the gospel with no other design that they might gratify the rage of the wicked by persecuting pious pastors. And so people have preached the gospel from time immemorial for the wrong reasons. But when they are preaching the gospel, yet Christ is being set before the world still and the gospel is advancing. It is very possible that by creating enmity, as the world, the flesh, and the devil want to do, I mean, let's face it, your enemy, the devil, always wants to stir up contention between Christians. He wants to tear them apart. 
He wants to tear families apart, and he wants to tear congregations apart, and he wants to tear denominations apart. He would like nothing more than for you to harbor grudges and to hate one another and have no desire whatsoever to be reconciled. And yet, even as he creates those stumbling blocks, the gospel advances. One of the things that I, I, you know, it should not be the case, but the majority of church plants in many cases are actually what we call semi-jokingly tongue-in-cheek splants. What has actually happened is a congregation is split and in doing so, they have formed another congregation. Now, it was terrible that contention and, and, and things like that split that particular congregation, but it is wonderful that another congregation arises, especially if Christ is now being preached in two different locations. But Paul, when it comes to, to this, he does not respond like these envious preachers. He does not desire to get his own back against them. He doesn't badmouth them. Instead, he has an entirely different mind. His motivation is the same as John the Baptist. As long as Christ increases, he has this attitude of, I don't care who gets the people and the numbers and the acclaim as long as Christ increases, as long as his name is proclaimed as long as people are coming to faith in him and being saved. Paul forgets himself constantly. He is full of love to Christ and as a result, love to the brethren, even those whose desire is to hurt him. He wants to see Christ advance no matter how it happens. He wants to see Christ going forward. And so what what applications can we draw from this? I want to give you two applications. The first is this courage under fire heartens the brethren. Courage under fire heartens the brethren. Brothers and sisters, when we stand firm for the faith and people see that courage, even in the midst of persecution, it strengthens others who would otherwise be weakened. One of the most important books that was ever published uh, in Great Britain, aside from the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress, was Fox's Book of Martyrs. At one time, uh, a Christian in uh, the British Isles and a Christian in the United States or the American colonies would not have uh, considered their library complete or themselves to be well-read in terms of Christian reading if they had not read all three books. Fox's Book of Martyrs was monumentally important because it showed the way in which the martyrs of the church, going all the way back to the first century in Stephen and then forward in time to the point where George Fox was writing his work, it showed the way that they had suffered for the faith and yet the faith had advanced in the midst of their suffering and the way that people were impressed. I mean, one of the great examples for that was what happened during the Counter-Reformation in England. You remember that Edward VI, or perhaps you don't, Henry VIII's son Edward VI came to the throne and he was a convinced Protestant, but he was a young man. He was only a teenager. And he died when he was very young. He tried to reform the nation to bring in a, a real Protestant reformation. And he made great advances. He brought forward the Book of Common Prayer, which was a huge advancement. I mean, it's still, you know, a little too liturgical and uh, too much of men's traditions are in it. But still, it was a huge improvement over the Catholic prayer books and, and breviaries and all of the things that had been put in the hands of people. 
But when he died, his sister Mary, she tried to turn everything back to Roman Catholicism. And one of the ways that she did that was by martyring as many Protestants who would not recant their faith as she possibly could. And amongst the men who were brought uh, to be burned at the stake at Smithfields in London were Latimer and Ridley, these two bishops. And Fox tells us, then they brought a faggot kindled with fire, that's a bundle of sticks, uh, and laid the same down at Dr. Ridley's feet, to whom Master Latimer spake in this manner, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. I won't read the rest of what Fox records of their burning. Uh, it is fairly explicit, but they did play the man throughout it. They died, but they set an example before the people who saw them. They saw their courage and their faith. You can preach a sermon, but they lived a sermon in the midst of that. They showed their love to Christ by the way that they were willing to die for him. And that impressed the British people. So much so that as Protestant men and women were brought to Smithfields and they were put to death singing psalms, forgiving their persecutors, calling people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, eventually they started doing things like they would, they would put their tongue in a clamp so they couldn't speak or sing uh, psalms as they were being put to death. Bloody Mary in the midst of this, was warned by her advisors, particularly her, uh, particularly her Archbishop Stephen Gardner, who was in charge of the persecution, that if she continued her campaign of burning Protestants, she would only succeed in making all of England Protestant. Because with each one who died, people saw more and more the true faith distinguished from Mary's false faith, her man-centered and man-created faith. And so when you stand for the faith, you embolden others. You advance the gospel just as Paul did in Rome. And we're reminded of that. But what's the counter to that? When we are weak, when we compromise, when we seek to get along with the world, when we, we show that Laodicean spirit from Revelation 3, where we become lukewarm in our faith and where, well, let's just compromise our way out of this if we possibly can. That kind of lack of faith Jesus finds sickening, that lukewarmness. He says he wants to, to spit up, to throw up out of his mouth. It makes him want to vomit. And I've seen that as well. One of the most sickening examples I saw was actually when we were still members of the PCA, and it happened at Vanderbilt University. What happened was Vanderbilt University changed the requirements for campus religious organizations, requiring that they allow uh, any student, regardless of their beliefs or sexual orientation, to serve in the student leadership of that organization or leave the campus. Most of the religious groups said, no way. We are not caving into this under any circumstances. Only two evangelical religious groups on campus complied with the policy. And one of those groups, to, to my dismay, was the PCA's Reformed University Fellowship. They signed the, uh, the declaration in, in, uh, in essence. And the national coordinator, Rod Mays, put down his name on it. Vanderbilt professor Carol Swain, the advisor of the Vanderbilt Christian Legal Society, publicly castigated RUF, saying that RUF betrayed their faith by complying with the university and that it was a great disappointment that these two large groups, that was RUF and, and the Baptist Collegiate Ministry, did not stand with us. 
Swain believes that the university might have backed down had these groups not agreed to comply. Had all the Christians stood together in that moment, they would have emboldened one another and weakened the resistance. But they didn't. We showed a gap in the line and the enemy poured through. Brothers and sisters, learn this. You gain nothing by compromising with the world. You gain nothing from compromising your faith. And you weaken the resistance of all those who stand around you. It is of vital importance, therefore, for us to stand firm in what we believe, to stand firm for the gospel as Paul was standing firm in Rome, not seeking to compromise. Now, the second thing is that you must oppose false doctrine and false gospels with every fiber of your being, but you must also issue that is shun and, and avoid selfishness and sectarianism as much as possible. We need to stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must never ever allow ourselves or our pastor uh, to be the one who is making disciples for themselves. We must never get in the mindset that what is most important is for our church to become gigantic to become a mega ministry and instead of planting other churches merely to create other campuses that we can control and so on. Or to become so sectarian that we would say to others, you can't come and worship with us unless you are of us. Or work with us because you are not of us. You can't be our friends. We must always be working together with everybody who is making disciples for Christ. Now, uh, it is, uh, it is something that we must be very guarded about when we are seeking how to do that. Um, one of the things uh, that I, I have to remember is that I must never compromise the faith in seeking to work with other Christians, to compromise the essentials, certainly. But let me give you two examples of ways that we have as a church attempted to, or I have personally attempted to work with, with people who are not exactly of the same faith. Whenever we go over, I must tell you, to, to teach at TBI and so on, and I have a, a group of African students in front of me who are there to, to learn, and I'm, I'm there to teach the Reformed faith, I am very conscious of the fact that the majority of the men and the women in that room are not members of the PCU. That is the Presbyterian Church in Uganda. The majority of the people in the last two classes that I taught were Pentecostals and Anglicans. Very few PCU members. And yet, they were there to learn as much doctrine as they could. And it was, it was a delightful thing that if I could prove from the scripture that something was true, even though they weren't supposed to accept it according to their denominational teachings, they went along with it. So I was able to teach about cessation. I was able to teach why women shouldn't be in the ministry and things like that. But had I simply said, I'm not going to teach this group of men because they are not Presbyterian and Reformed, the opportunity to spread the true gospel would have been lost in that moment. Teach the truth. Work with those brothers. And incidentally, the fact is when you go to, uh, I have to say this, you go to a PCU church worship service and then you go to a Pentecostal church worship service in Uganda, it's very hard to tell the difference as a general rule. And you see the influence of American Pentecostalism in worship. We're working on that. But nonetheless, that's one of those ways in which you can be involved with men of other denominations without compromising your faith and yet be working to advance the gospel. 
I'll give you another example. You know, you can say, well, that's the mission field. What about here at home? Well, I was contacted a little while ago by uh, somebody on Facebook, uh, and they were looking for a church in their hometown. And I, they live in the middle of rural Indiana, literally n next to nothing. This is one of those ecclesiastical black holes. And uh, mainline church, mainline, it's liberal, 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 liberal. So I, I was asking, were there any other churches in the area? Because the only reformed work that I could find was, was literally an hour drive away. And that was just not going to work for a family with small children. And they needed, they needed the gospel. So uh, they said, well, there is this other church. The, the pastor, there's actually a coach for, for our kids. And I don't know anything about it. And I don't know how to judge it and so on. So I said, give me his number. I give me his name and his number. I gave him a call and I spoke to him for two hours. He, uh, it was an Assemblies of God church, and the thing that I wanted to make sure of was that this man was solid in the gospel. So I talked to him about all of the, you know, the ways in which uh, Pentecostals can go over the, off the rails. The first thing I wanted to make sure was that it wasn't a word of faith teaching church. It wasn't. And I asked him about various things. Do you believe in, uh, you know, that divine healing always has to happen? Do you believe that people have to speak in tongues in order to be uh, called Christians and so on, that that's the second blessing of the Holy Spirit? And the answers he was giving were no, 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 no. And I listened to some of his sermons. It wasn't the way I would preach the gospel. And certainly the worship service was not the way I would organize it. But it was the same gospel. And so after speaking to him for a while and hearing about his zeal for missions and his desire to see the gospel produce fruit in his area and to go forward in the way that he had done that both as a coach and as a pastor, I called him back up and I said, go to his church. Go to this man's church. You need to, you need to be hearing the gospel. And it's proclaimed there. And I had no reservations about doing that because I knew that this man believed in the solas. He believed in sola scriptura. He believed in, he believed in essence in the same gospel. And therefore I had no problem doing that. We need to be willing to work with brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of the men that I today count to be my best friends in the faith, I must tell you, started off as Baptists. Now they know better. <laughs> but, uh, had, I, had I simply said, I'm not going to talk to, to these guys because they're, they're different. They have different beliefs and so on. I'm not going to worship with them. I'm not going to study the scriptures with them. You know, what foolishness that would have been. I know we'll all be reformed in heaven. So I can wait. And in the meantime, there are many ministries within this town, many pastors I am, I am privileged to call my friends, even though we don't line up on everything. Work with those people. John Calvin said this. He said, those who truly love Christ reckon that it would be a disgrace to them if they did not associate themselves with Paul as his companions when maintaining the cause of the gospel. And we must act in such a manner as to give a helping hand as far as possible to the servants of Christ when in difficulty. It was a wonderful display of Christian love that after Hans Schmidt was shot in front of his church, Christians from throughout the, uh, throughout the city came and preached in the same spot and invited people to his church. Brothers, that's a beautiful display of Christian unity and something that I would hope we would do ourselves. Let me leave you with a word from Christ on this particular subject. In Luke 9.49, we read this. Now John answered and said, Master, this is John the Apostle, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. 
But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Let us remember that. Now let's go into his presence. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the encouragements that you give us to stand firm for the gospel truth, to be willing even to die for it, the way that no matter what men do, they cannot stop the gospel from advancing. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to, to not be split asunder, not to be filled with sectarianism, not, O Lord, to refuse to work with brothers who are of like mind, who agree on the central points of the gospel. May it be the case that we will do whatever we can to strengthen those who are oppressed, to pray for the persecuted even though we may not agree with them across everything, and to do all that we can to see the name of Christ increase. May he increase, may we decrease, may that be our motto as well. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name.